Philippians is a, a fun letter, I think, and I am looking forward to uh, zooming through it with you all this evening. Uh, let's just go ahead and dive right into it. We'll follow, you can follow along in your, uh, your study guide or uh, study sheet there this evening. Some highlights of major points that we'll be hitting with some uh, special or uh, not special, but maybe verses that I would like to highlight for us as we work our way through and some points of application as we make our way through this relatively short letter. As we come to the letter to Philippians, it's helpful to, again, remember the different particulars about this letter. First of all, its author. The author is Paul, the apostle, uh, formerly known as Saul, persecutor of the Christians, until he had that dramatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus, where he saw the risen Jesus, was blinded for a time, then healed as he arrived in the city of Damascus, became a follower of Jesus, and uh, very shortly, uh, relatively shortly thereafter, a major figure uh, in the early church. Next to Jesus, Paul was probably the most influential uh, human being in the course of Christian history. Some might say St. Augustine uh, holds a, a title close to that in terms of influence, but I think none, other, none beside Jesus uh, is, is as significant in Christian history than Paul. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, probably, most scholars believe, very, very near to the end of his life, probably between 60 and 62 A.D., during his final imprisonment toward the end of his life, as he was expecting to be executed for the cause of Christ and for proclaiming the gospel in the Roman Empire. The general context of Philippians is this. Uh, the, the city of Philippi was first visited by Paul during his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. You can go read about that uh, later on this week, if you'd like, where he shared the gospel with a merchant woman named Lydia. It's really interesting, I think, to see that the first convert to Christianity in the city of Philippi is uh, a wealthy businesswoman uh, who, who is, uh, deal, who deals in purple cloths and, uh, that sort of thing, uh, dealing to persons of royalty and, and of means and that sort of thing. Now, along with his partner, Silas, Paul, uh, while in Philippi during that first, uh, trip would, uh, exercise a demon from a slave girl in Philippi, which ultimately led to his imprisonment. And there the conversion of a jailer after a divinely sent earthquake, you probably remember the story of the Philippian jailer who is converted after, uh, uh after, uh, an earthquake shakes the whole jail, uh, Paul and Silas and the other prisoners, uh, chains all fall down, but they don't leave. They don't escape. And as the Philippian jailer is about to take his own life in fear for the consequence for allowing slaves to escape, Paul and the others say, no, no, no. Hey man, we're all still here. Don't kill yourself. Don't do anything crazy. And that night they share the gospel with the Philippian jailer, everyone in his house, and they all become believers and are baptized. The church at Philippi was a significant city. Uh, it, it stood as one of only four cities in the Roman Empire that had a special status of uh, tax exemption from the Roman Empire. It was a holdover colonial city from Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philip, and sort of his uh, a major conquering uh, campaign, if you would. The city, Philippi, was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip. And because it's sort of a, a primary colony of the Roman Empire, uh, empire, it, it had special status. And so kind of like people wanting to live in Florida because there's no state income tax, people would want to live in Philippi because it's just better to do business there. So it was a, a bustling place. And yet it was also a place of great idolatry and worship of false gods. 
the church at Philippi with Lydia and the slave girl, presumably, and we think probably also this Philippian jailer, was the first church that Paul was able to plant and establish. And he'd shared the gospel in several different cities, but in Philippi was where he was actually able to kind of gather believers together and place leadership, uh, put leadership in place and have a church there. The letter that he writes here to the Philippians was written, as we said, likely during Paul's final imprisonment in Rome toward the end of his life. And this being the case, the, uh, the, the letter of, uh, to the Philippians has a kind of an upbeat tone that stands in contrast to the trajectory of Paul's life. Toward the end of Paul's life, you would think that his letters would become maybe more melancholy, more heavy, more kind of steeped in sadness. And yet Philippians is a really encouraging letter. And Paul takes time in different places to encourage to encourage the people by name and specifically. For instance, if we just look at um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Philippians chapter 2, like in verse 19 and following, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just, uh, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to me, uh, to, to, and your, excuse me, messenger and minister to my time of need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul is sending this letter uh, that we call Philippians to the church in Philippi in the hands of this man Epaphroditus. Well known among the people of Philippi, among the church in Philippi, who is a, a fellow minister with Paul and a great help to Paul, who had developed a, a deep and abiding relationship with the apostle. And now Paul, out of his love for the people in Philippi, is sending their brother back to them with this letter in hand uh, as a show of Paul's continued love and care for these people. If I were to summarize Philippians just very, very shortly, I would do it in a couple of sentences. You have this in your note guide. Philippians is a very encouraging and uplifting letter. Generally speaking, it is written to exhort, that is to encourage the church at Philippi to press on in faithfulness to Christ, to press on in love for one another, and to press on in the truth of the gospel that they received from Paul. Uh, anybody here, just by show of hands, have like any of their favorite verses from Scripture occurring in Philippians? Yeah, okay, lots of hands going up. Okay, it's no surprise. It's a very encouraging letter. And yet we need to take the encouragement of this letter uh, in the context of Paul's imprisonment and just remember that, right? If, if you were about to come to the end of your life and, and were to write a letter to people that you loved the most and enjoyed working with the most in the Lord, would it sound as encouraging as Philippians? I don't know, maybe. But it says something about Paul's own mindset, Paul's love for Jesus, and really what is the major theme, I think, of Philippians, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. There are at least four major themes that uh, I see sort of flowing through uh, the letter to the Philippians. And maybe as you study it further this week or throughout the year, you want to take a few different highlighters and, uh, of different colors. And as you're reading through Philippians, maybe highlight where you see these themes coming up with a different color each so that you can see how they flow through the letter. 
Four major themes that I see are, are these four. First of all, Jesus is sufficient. Christ alone is enough for us. Secondly, humility is the way to exaltation. That the way up is down. The way to, to being uh, uh, exalted is through serving others. Third, union in Christ through faith in him leads to love for the body, leads to love for other Christians who are also united to Christ. And then fourth and finally, suffering is joy. We see this theme, which seems paradoxical, all throughout the, the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that suffering is joy. That to walk with Jesus is to suffer, but to suffer like Jesus is a delight to us as we are continuing to be made in his image. And we like to set every book that we study this way uh, of the Bible in the scope of all of redemption history. Redemption history, you know, is summarized by those four movements of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God's creation of all things in the beginning. The fall of man when our first parents, Adam and Eve, eat that fruit of the tree in disobedience to God's command. The promise of redemption that will come, a promise that is made first in Genesis 3, verse 15, but then is uh, fully fleshed out and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus as he dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. And then after Christ's resurrection, we enter into the church age looking forward to consummation. That is that day when God makes everything right in the world, when Christ returns to call the saints to himself, to judge the living and the dead, and to recreate this world. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth for us to live in with him for all eternity. Now, Philippians deals primarily, or at least falls primarily, in this area uh, between or around those last two acts, those last two epics of redemption history, uh, of redemption history, of redemption and consummation. Philippians kind of falls in the middle of those two, reminds us of what we have been saved from and how we have been saved through faith in Jesus. And it points us toward what we look forward to, which is our eternal state in the presence of Jesus. And so uh, if you're wanting to locate that on your on your guide with whatever you're taking notes with, maybe circle uh, those last two uh, eras of redemption history, if you'd like to, in terms of placing it there, redemption and consummation. Now, Philippians, like so many other uh, of the epistles that we have read already and studied in the New Testament, is a, a letter. Epistle is, a, a, you know, a fancy Bible word for a letter, okay? Epistles are often written to specific churches with a specific occasion or a conflict that, that, that is being addressed. For instance, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, we see Paul addressing all kinds of problems at the church in Corinth. In Galatians, Paul is addressing the problem in the, the, among the churches in the region of Galatia, where some were uh, thinking that they had to add circumcision to their faith in Jesus in order to be truly saved. In Philippians, there's, it's, it's hard to find a, a specific occasion for which uh, Paul is writing to them. Everything's so encouraging. He doesn't necessarily correct them of ma any major errors. There is some warning that he gives to them. Um, but I think more than anything, the occasion of Philippians, the reason for Paul's writing is because he's at the end of his life and he wants to write a letter of love and encouragement to a church that he knows has loved him and has followed Jesus faithfully. When you're reading Philippians or any other um, uh, any other uh, uh, epistle in the New Testament, you want to use questions like these to help you understand the text and apply it to your life. First, what is the occasion? What's the purpose for the author writing this letter? Second, what theological principles, what themes are guiding the letter? 
Third, in what ways is the occasion, is the purpose of the letter, maybe similar to what uh, uh, I'm going through, our church is going through in the present day? How can I uh, apply the principles that I find uh, in Philippians to my own life? Philippians, an outline is really, really short, uh, about five movements. And we'll kind of follow along through these movements uh, as we make our way studying this letter. First, in the first 11 verses, is a greeting and a prayer from Paul. This is a standard way, not just for Paul to write letters, but for people in antiquity uh, in the Roman Empire to write letters with a greeting and a prayer to start. Paul's reflection on his imprisonment comes next in verses 12 through 26 as he tells why he's in prison and why it's not necessarily a bad thing. Then in chapter 2, he points to the example and the implications of Christ's humility for the church. Moving on in chapter 3 through the first part of chapter 4, there's a warning against uh, Judaizers, those who would seek to, uh, again, add circumcision to, to faith in Jesus in order for someone to be a faithful follower of Christ. And he gives an encouragement to the church in Philippi toward faithfulness. And then he closes the letter with final personal exhortation and greetings to individuals in the church in Philippi. So let's look at this short letter whose major theme is that Jesus is enough. Again, if you were staring down the edge of the blade that would soon remove your head from your body, what would you say to those that you loved and would miss the most? This is surely what was going through Paul's own mind as he wrote this letter to the Philippians. Doubtless, a good many of us have our favorite verses of Scripture located in the pages of this short letter, and we've seen by show of hands for whom that is the case, and it's no wonder why. Philippians is just very encouraging. It's very hopeful. It's uplifting and edifying to believers. Indeed, Paul, I believe, intended to leave words of encouragement for his dear friends at the church in Philippi. But more than that, he wanted to leave them with one overarching theme to remember, that in all of life, good and hard, Jesus is enough. We see this theme of Jesus being sufficient played out in at least five different ways in the letters. First, in the letter, first of all, we see that Jesus is our salvation, or Paul teaches us this rather. As Paul begins his letter in formulaic fashion, no less, he does so with a greeting steeped in a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the Philippian Christians. Read along in your Bibles, uh, uh, chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 3 to 11. Paul says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul loves the Philippians, not because they're particularly wonderful people, though I think he thought that they probably were, but because they were saved people, people saved by, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And just as they were saved by grace through faith, Paul reminds his friends in Philippi that he is confident that the same Jesus who saved them will keep them saved. 
and that the same Jesus who saved them and will keep them saved will also complete their salvation by resurrecting their dead bodies from the grave when he returns again. Paul's confidence in Christ's ability to save to the uttermost is reflected in his confidence to keep speaking what he says, the word, without fear, even in his imprisonment. To be saved from sin by Christ is to be united to him by faith in both life and death. So because Paul is confident of his salvation uh, through Christ and in Christ, he can say with all boldness in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 1, these words. He says, for me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's strange to hear someone say, I'm hard-pressed between whether I should live or die. Right? Like, like that would be a very difficult choice for most of us. I, I think if we were given the choice to live or die, most of us would probably choose to live. But Paul, looking forward to the resurrection and to being in the very presence of Jesus even after death, says, that's a hard choice. But to remain in the flesh, he says in verse 24, is more necessary on your account. Paul loves the Philippians. He loves Jesus. He knows the salvation that the Philippians have enjoyed by knowing Jesus. And because of the confidence that he has through his redemption and rescue from sin through faith in Christ, he is hard pressed to choose between life and death. Because in life, uh, life is to is to do the work of Christ and death is to live forever with Christ. So that's just a hard choice for Paul. And yet salvation at the same time. As excited as it makes Paul, salvation is not all tulips and roses of pleasure. It's not just a skip through a fragrant garden. Salvation is also hard soil and thorns of suffering shared with Jesus. See, this is what salvation is. It's not merely to be forgiven of sin, but to share in Christ's suffering. Paul reminds the Philippians of this in verses 29 and 30 of that same chapter, chapter 1. He says, therefore, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. You can almost hear the echo of Jesus's words in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, ringing in Paul's letter here. When Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. He is our salvation. And we are saved by him to suffer with him. It may seem like a strange point of application, but it's really important for us as Christians to know that suffering with Christ, for Christ, uh, because of the gospel, is not just a first century Christian virtue. It is God's intention for his church through all ages to suffer through times of difficulty because of the gospel that we may share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in the whole part of Christ's life, death and resurrection. This is a hard truth for many of us to grasp that to be saved by Christ is to suffer like him. It's a hard prayer to pray. Lord, give me grace to suffer like Christ. Give me grace even to die for him that I might walk all the more closely in life with him. And yet, this is not only Paul's prayer, it is his expectation and his joy. Paul delights in praying this. 
This is a man, dear friends, who understood salvation perhaps far better than anyone even ever since his day. And as he waits with expectation of dying for Christ in prison in Rome, the first thought on his mind is the wonder and the joy in knowing Jesus and being saved by him. Jesus is enough. He is our salvation. Jesus is also our example, Paul teaches. Jesus is our model, our example. More precisely, he's our example for humility, service, and selflessness. In what is probably the deepest and most beautiful bit of theology that God ever inspired Paul to write, we read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, these verses. I'm going to read several verses here, so read along in your copy of God's Word. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Be selfless, be humble, look out for the interests of others, says Paul. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, consider other people better than yourself. Look out for brothers and sisters in the faith, the apostle writes, seeking their interests. And how are we to do this? By having as our example for thinking and living the the very mind of Christ Jesus, our Savior himself. Jesus, the eternal and infinitely glorious Son of God, who stepped down from the most exalted position in all existence to become a servant to sinners... That by his death, we might be saved. That is the one that we are to emulate, that we are to follow. Exaltation comes through humility. The way up is down. The way to greatness is by serving. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, where he says, where we read at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught this concept to his disciples. He taught it in word, but he modeled it and he lived it to the uttermost with his own life. Who who is greater than Christ? None. And yet who took the lowest of all positions on earth in human existence, in human history to die for billions of people who do not deserve that grace? Jesus. So if Jesus, the most exalted being in all the cosmos, is able to take the lowest of all positions uh, among humanity in order to save us and then himself be exalted back to his previous position of highest exaltation in the cosmos... 
Well, then certainly we can stoop to wash the feet of those who are struggling, of those who are hurting, of our brothers and sisters to care for those in need. Jesus is not only our example for humility and service, but he's also our example for obedience. And by his obedience, he is the example for our exaltation as we seek to serve and to save the lost just as Jesus did. Not that we can save any, but certainly by our proclamation, our declaring the gospel to others, we can lead them to faith in Christ. The salvation that Jesus purchases is a salvation that is to be exercised in the way that we live. We've been seeing a lot of this already in the letter to James on Sunday mornings where we currently are. But we read in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 of Philippians these words. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, in light of all that you have heard about who Christ is, his exaltation, his humiliation, his obedience, and then his, his resurrection and exaltation again. Therefore, in light of all that, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we follow Christ, our example, we are to, as Paul says, work out our salvation, to work at our salvation. Now, notice Paul does not say to work for our salvation. Salvation is not a result of of anything that we do. It's not a result of any good works that we do to merit favor with God. It's all because of the favor God has given to us through his son, Jesus. And the progress that we make in following Jesus in heart, soul, mind, and strength is ultimately energized and worked out in us by the very God who saved us. Listen to these words again. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that that is an imperative. That's a command for the church. Work it out. For, because... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's really working out our salvation, us or God? The answer is yes, okay? (laughs) God works at first, but we continue to work at it and the power that God supplies. So what God brings, that is new life through faith in Christ in us, God is also good to sustain, to keep us working at it, to be obedient to Jesus. Jesus is our example. So, dear Christian, as you follow Jesus, imitate also his example. It's a very simple point of application, but I think it's about as clear as we can make from this text. Follow Jesus. Imitate his example. You've heard the old idiom, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Imitating Christ is not like this. I'll give you a bad illustration of what it looks like to follow Jesus. When I was in my first year at seminary, uh, I made uh, good friends with a guy from uh, Hawaii who talked in Hawaiian pidgin all the time, and I desperately wanted to learn it and struggled to. His name is Chris Galatia. He's a minister of uh, uh, music at First Baptist Belen for a while. He's back in California now. Great guy, super fun, loudest dude I have ever met in the world. Always yelling in the hallways, cheering for either the Oregon Ducks or the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors, but usually the Oregon Ducks because at that time, Hawaii did not have a very good football team. But anyway, so it was my first semester at at, uh, seminary and Halloween had come up and we're having a little like costume party kind of deal in the dorms. And so I, um, I don't like dressing up as things for Halloween. So if I can dress up as something uh, with the clothes in my closet, like that's my kind of costume. Like if I can put on a suit and go as a professional, then that's, you know, that's what I'll do. So uh, I thought it would be funny to poke a little bit 
bit of fun at Chris. And so I went into his closet. I stole his Oregon Ducks pullover. I put on some khaki shorts because he never wore pants and some flip-flops, or if you live in Hawaii, slippers on my feet. He had a little goatee, so I made a little fake goatee and put it on my chin and put on an Oregon Ducks hat. And I went as Chris Galatia to Halloween. Everybody thought it was great. I think even Chris laughed a little bit. I was imitating Chris. I liked the guy. He was fun to be around. Uh, I thought it would be flattering to him if I dressed up like him at Halloween. Imitating Christ is not like me dressing up as Chris Galatia for Halloween. Imitating Christ, following Jesus, imitating his example is more like the little boy who gets out his toy lawnmower and his little tyke's tools when he sees his dad going to work. You see, he's not pretending to be his dad, but he is doing work alongside his dad in the manner that his dad is doing the work. And so that's what it looks like to imitate Jesus, to care for the poor, the needy, to declare the gospel to those who are around us, to be humble and serving in our lives, to give all glory to God, not to try to dress up like Jesus and try to look like him, but to genuinely try, but to genuinely model our behavior after his. So as you follow Jesus, don't be like me dressing up like Chris Galatia for Halloween. Be like the little boy who so admires and loves his dad, who gets out his toy lawnmower and his little tykes tools to model the work that he sees his father doing. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is also our hope and our goal, teaches Paul. It seems that no letter from Paul would be complete without some sort of warning against false teachers. For these warnings, we should be grateful. Because we have them, we should... Thank Paul for pointing out uh, potential problems uh, ahead in the church. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul warns the Philippians to watch out for the dogs among them, uh, among the group uh, that we have come to call the Judaizers, these people who wanted to thought that, that circumcision needed to be added to faith in Jesus for uh, genuine salvation. These, were, these infiltrators uh, of the church tried to add works to faith, Uh, in order for people to faithfully follow Jesus. And so Paul calls them out and he calls out the error of their teaching. He says in verse three, uh, chapter three, verse two, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them uh, mutilators of the flesh because they are viciously making a mockery of the gospel leading believers to place their hope in works of the flesh, works of our own effort, and not in Christ only. If anyone had reason to hope in their Jewishness for salvation, it was Paul. Paul ticked all those boxes, and you can read all the boxes that he ticked in verses 3 through 7. Yet Paul himself says, in light of all of the things that I could boast about in the flesh, in light of all of my Jewishness, I count it all as loss in order to gain the hope of Jesus. Read Paul's words with me. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, 
I too may attain the resurrection from the dead. So you see, it is Jesus himself that is the hope of every Christian, not our works, not our deeds, not the good stuff we can do to hopefully gain God's favor. And anything that would stand in the way or distract us from placing all of our hope in Christ alone is to be counted as refuse, as rubbish, as trash, as garbage. All the good things I can do in my life, even for the kingdom of God, all of the good things that I can do in my life are worth nothing compared to gaining Christ and knowing him personally, Paul says. Paul sees Jesus not only as his hope, as that, as that thing that he is looking forward to and clinging on to, not his own works, but clinging on to Christ. Paul sees Jesus not only as his hope, but also as his goal. It's what he's shooting for. He says in chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who of us who are mature think this way, and if uh, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, the goal that Paul is straining for, but not having attained, as he says, is the resurrection of the dead. And it is in the resurrection from the dead, wherein believers in Christ will live with Christ forever. Christ is my goal, says Paul, in that eternal life with him is where I am headed. And it is the direction toward which I am bound. There is nothing standing in my way. And if anything tries to pop up in my way, I'm going to get it out of my way so that I can be with Christ. Jesus is our hope. He is our goal. So, dear friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Be neither distracted nor dissuaded that he is your hope and your goal and press on toward him. I was never a very good runner, but for a short season of my life, a very short season of my life, I was a runner and I trained to run a half marathon, the Duke City half marathon. Uh, <coughs> it felt like two years ago. I feel like I'm still sore from it, but you know, it was like 15 years ago. And so I trained for several months. Uh, and on race day, uh, you know, I hit it and around mile 10, I really started, uh, feeling the burn and I probably would have quit and started walking had my uncle who is like 30 years older than me, but way more fit than I can ever hope to be. My uncle had already finished the race and he circled back to come find me <laughs> jerk. I'm just kidding. Not my uncle Gordon. Gordon, are you here tonight? Is Gordon here? He's not here now. Okay. It's his younger brother, Tommy, my, my mom's twin. Anyway, so, so my uncle Tommy finishes the race like, like an hour before me, circles back around to find me, and he runs with me uh, all the way until the last stretch of the race where I can finally see the, the finish line, big banner and all that stuff, people cheering and yelling. I wouldn't have made it those last three or so miles without my uncle's help and encouragement. But once I got to that final stretch and I could see the goal, I could see the, the, the finish line in the distance, I suddenly just had this burst of energy and I sprinted. It was probably more like speed walking. But in my mind, I was sprinting 
toward the finish because I could see it. There was nothing holding me back. There were no more turns in the race. There were no more uh, distractions. I, I couldn't feel the pain in my legs any longer. And so I was focused. I was fixed. I was undistracted and I finished the race. Praise God. I've never run another one since. So don't encourage me too much. But I think that's the same thing that Paul is calling the Philippians to. That same sort of like home stretch, last mile, you can see the finish line in the distance, sort of focus on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Don't be distracted by these false teachers. Don't be distracted by good things you think you're doing or reputation you're storing up for yourself. Push all of that aside to focus on Christ. He is your hope. He is your goal. Press on toward him. Jesus is our hope and our goal. Fourth, Paul teaches that Jesus is our peace. Perhaps the greatest miracle of salvation, short of bringing dead souls to life, is that Jesus makes it possible for people who have no good reason to get along to consider one another brothers and sisters. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul addresses two sisters in the church, uh, sisters in the faith, not sisters in the flesh, but two sisters who are in conflict. Their names are only mentioned here in Scripture, and uh, some lament this a little bit. They feel badly for these two because they're only known in all of Scripture for fighting together. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know what their conflict was. Paul doesn't tell us. We don't know who was right and who was wrong. We don't have those specifics. All we know is that Paul loved and honored these ladies and co-laborers in Christ and was bothered by their contention with one another. And so he pleads with them in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. May seem strange that Paul would take two or three lines out of this letter to encourage these two ladies to agree in the Lord, irrespective of what their conflict was. But I think it's important because Paul sees the great deal of peace, of reconciliation that Christ has brought between us and God. And he desires that that same kind of reconciliation fill the life of the church. That where there is conflict, people find agreement in the Lord and are able to come together around that. I hope, dear friends, we truly have grasped how great a gift it is that we have in Christ. Who, because, <clears throat> because he makes peace between us and God, can also then empower us to be at peace with one another. The greatest thing that we have in common with one another is not our birthplace or our social rank or uh, maybe the neighborhoods we live in. The greatest thing we have in common is not even the church that we are members of. But the greatest thing that we have in common, dear friends, is Christ himself. And that commonality is enough to bring any two parties who are believing in Jesus to reconciliation with one another. Not only is Jesus a source of peace in the middle of personal conflict, like between these two sisters, Yodia and Syntyche, but Jesus is also the one who guards our troubled hearts and minds with peace from God the Father. Right, so there's peace in the sense of reconciliation, and then there is peace, Jesus being our peace, in the sense of he's the one that, that, that gives comfort to our troubled minds. Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Maybe this is, these are some of your favorite verses. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Imagine with me a moment in your mind's eye, Paul writing this letter. He's old, grizzled from life on the mission field, chained in prison, struggling with his eyesight in a dark and dank cell. And he has the gall to say to his friends in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How can Paul say this with such confidence? How can Paul not just encourage, but command the church at Philippi to rejoice when he himself is in much suffering? How can he, he instruct the Philippians to take everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving when he himself seems to have nothing? How? Other than that, he himself has come to know and enjoy the peace of heart, peace of soul, peace of mind that is knowing Christ Jesus himself. Friends, that is the only thing that can explain it. That the fellowship that Paul had with Christ Jesus was so deep, so abiding, so significant in his own life that it far surpassed any physical or temporary troubles that this life could throw at him. And so he encourages the Philippians all the more to rejoice in the Lord because Jesus is our peace. Friends, we need to seek peace. Not in the things that this world offers. Not in the comforts of this life. We need to seek peace in the person of Jesus Christ. And we need to make peace. We need to be peacemakers in the power and unity that Jesus gives. Turn your Bibles with me just real quick to Matthew chapter 5. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. Jesus says this. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers, not peace pray forers, not peace hopers, but peacemakers. Those who are active in bringing reconciliation to conflicted relationships and to conflicted souls. The reason that we can be peacemakers as Christians is because we know Christ who is our peace. We know Jesus who has reconciled us in our rebellion against God uh, through his own blood uh, on the cross and resurrection from the dead, reconciled us, made us right with God whom we have infinitely offended. We have known the the greatest reconciliation uh, between any two Uh, uh, parties in conflict that anyone can know because of who Christ Jesus is and what he has done. And so we can also uh, not only have the ability to bring peace to troubled or conflicted situations, conflicted relationships inside and outside of the church, but we're also able to, because we know Christ, bring peace to conflicted minds and conflicted souls. People who are hurting, people who are grieving, people who are troubled with anxiety and sorrow. We can, because we know Jesus, who is our peace, the great reconciler, We can bring peace through the power of Christ and the gospel through God's word to those who are troubled in any sort of context. 
Dear friends, seek peace in the person of Jesus. If you don't know Christ today, if you're walking, if you're living this life apart from relationship with Jesus, hear this tonight, that there is one way to be made right with God, your father who created you to know, love and worship him. And that is by simply turning from your sin and placing all your faith, all your trust in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for your sins and was raised again from the dead, that you might be right with God. Know the peace of Jesus. And if you have known the peace of Jesus, then work the peace of Jesus in the lives of those who are around you. Seek to bring defrauded or conflicted parties to reconciliation with one another. Because blessed, happy are those who make peace. Because they will be called sons of God. Fifth and finally, Paul teaches us at the end of his life and at the end of this letter that Jesus is sufficient. As he closes this letter, the Lord brings Paul to pen what are some of the most beloved and oft quoted verses in all of Scripture. With thanksgiving, Paul remembers the way that the Philippians have loved him and sought to care for him in prison. They were unable to help him physically to the the degree that they had wanted. But Paul wants them to know that while they may think they have come short in supporting their friend, that even in spite of whatever shortcomings they've had in being able to care for him, listen, Christ is enough. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, we read these words from Paul. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. Now, friends, this is not a verse, Philippians 4.13, very popular one, not a verse that speaks to our ability to win Super Bowls and World Series. Neither is this a verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not a verse that says we can or should expect to be wealthy or economically successful in this life. No, friends, this is a statement about the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ in every and all situations. Jesus does not make us to be all that we can be. He sustains and satisfies us when we have nothing and when we are nothing in the eyes of the world. If I have much, says Paul, if I abound, it is of no concern because I have Jesus and he is greater still. If I'm dirt poor and starving, I'll be okay because I have Jesus. He sustains me. There is no situation, says Paul, no circumstance, good, bad, or ugly, in which I will ever fear for my life, in which I will ever fear or fret for my sustenance, because I know Christ. There's no amount of wealth that can surpass the richness of knowing him, and there's no depth of pain, sorrow, sickness, poverty, imprisonment, in which Jesus is not fully present and has not already gone himself. He is the key to my contentment. I can do anything. I can endure all situations through Christ, who's already endured it, and who himself strengthens me for endurance. Dear Christian, Learn Jesus, not not as the one who makes you happy, healthy, and wise. Learn Jesus, not as the one who helps you to win Super Bowls and World Series. But learn Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior 
who leads us to know what true contentment is. Learn true contentment. Find your security in this life. Find your grounding, your footing in this life, in the sufficiency, the enoughness of Jesus, who alone is able to strengthen you for all of life's circumstances. At the end of his life, Paul has but one theme for the church that he loved in the Macedonian city of Philippi. That is that Jesus is enough. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, he closes his letter. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Let's stop for just a moment and highlight the fact that at this point, uh, by about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel has already begun to impact the emperor's house. You see that? That's kind of cool, I think. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How is it that Paul can have such encouraging words for these dear brothers and sisters in Philippi at the end of his life, as he was, as we said, staring down the blade of the sword that would sever his head from his body. How can he be so confident? How can he be so bold? How can he have so much joy in the middle of all that he is enduring? Only because he knows that Jesus is enough. Friends, tonight we get to celebrate and remember how Jesus was sufficient, and in what very real way he proves his sufficiency for our...